From high atop Rocky Road in Moab, Utah, it's KZMU News. I'm Molly Marcello. This is your news for Thursday, November 24th. Colorado author Erica Wirth has written novels, short stories, poetry, and nonfiction. Her latest book, White Horse, is a piece of literary horror that explores themes of loss and identity through the lens of a protagonist who, like Wirth, is a, quote, urban Indian. Rocky Mountain Community Radio's Maeve Conran spoke with Worth about writing contemporary Native American fiction and being part of a new wave of Indigenous literature. Much of Erica Worth's latest novel is set in a bar, the titular White Horse, which is based on a real bar in Denver, which Worth says was a gathering place for urban Indians, something I ask her to define. I have to say, I'm sure a lot of different Natives would have different answers to that, and I think that it's actually a combination of things, one of which at least is talked about a little bit, and the other one I wish were talked about more. So um, a lot of people in the 50s, the government did these, let's shrink the reservations and get na- natives off the res, and they kind of, it wasn't forced right, but it was encouraged, and they did these relocation programs. And so that happened for a while, and people were, you know, relocated to Chicago, given jobs. Denver, these different areas, um, different urban areas. Um, And then a lot of people like my boyfriend, his mom's from the Rosebud Res, and she herself decided, you know, I'm going to go to Denver, and it's not too far, and better jobs, etc. My family um, is, you know, something that's probably talked about more in Canada, where urban Indians have, like, government records, and they have a sort of secondary status, the Métis. Um, But my family is a bit more like that, and that is a group of Native people that exist, um, you know, some of them from Mexico, right? So they're Latinx natives um, who, you know, what tribe they are, know, you know, a lot about their traditions. And they also know, and my family is also um, black natives from the southeast. They're Chickasaw and they're white natives too. They were, that were Cherokee um, who decided to relocate from the southeast into Texas and met up with the rest of my family. And isn't, again, unlike a lot of different urban Indian cultures in Chicago or Minneapolis or Winnipeg, where a lot of the culture revolves around probably a mix of different traditions, but um, primarily Native American church and powwows. In addition to writing books, Worth designed a room in Meow Wolf in Denver, which incorporates Native American history, contemporary Native stories and Indigenous futurism. A concept Worth says is alien to most people who aren't even familiar with Indigenous people in contemporary settings. Grace Dillon, who's of Anishinaabe descent, she um, very respectfully, I think, you know, took a nod from Afrofuturism and created this Indigenous Futurisms. And it was a way of saying, you know, for example, if you say Native American science fiction, it breaks people's brains and it makes them unable to just force us into the past and force us into this more stereotyped, um, narrow, singular vision of who we are. And the big writers in this regard are certainly people like Rebecca Roanhorse, who technically you could say, for example, Black Sun takes place in the past, but it's a magical past. And you feel an almost nostalgia, you know, walking the streets of like ancient Mayan territories that are civilized, that are, you know, and if, almost like what we would want for ourselves in the future. There's also B.L. Blanchard with uh, The Peacekeeper, which is a set in, it's very much a science fiction novel with a crime center, and it's super brilliant. And it's um, set in an alternative America, alternative world, in which, um, you know, colonization never happened. And talk about, you know, she, you know, the characters go into a Chicago that was never colonized, and, and, 
again, this just almost sense of nostalgia for something, you know, none of us can ever really have and hope for in the future. Worth, who did her undergraduate studies at Fort Lewis College in Durango and her PhD at the University of Colorado in Boulder, is part of a new wave of Indigenous writers, something she says is long overdue. There was an article that that I looked up. It came, it was like 97, and it was like, you know, here are all these Native American writers, and then all boiled down to one. And for 20 years, I've spent time, especially in the last five years, writing these articles about Kelly Jo Ford, Brandon Hobson, David Heska, Wombly Wyden, um, the writers I mentioned before, showing that um, hopefully this is not a moment, right, that it just keeps on going and increasing, and I will break myself um, around making sure that it never boils down to just one person again. I don't think that's healthy, or and it's not fun. And I think that people need to, you know, maybe read our books because they've read the description and it sounds cool and fun and smart to read rather than like, oh, this is the most authentic Indian who will teach me the authentic things because that's, that's just goofy. It's not fun. Worth says that for too long, literature has not reflected the full breadth of Indigenous experiences and has instead perpetuated cliches and stereotypes about Native Americans, something she hopes to change. Just Google my name and I will give you like BuzzFeed. I did, I think, a really great article because it's a two to three sentence like series of like lists, you know, just like here is Chip Livingston. He's a queer um, writer of Creek and Cherokee descent. Here's what his book's about. Um, And I just try to go down the line so that people would see that. And I think that's the thing. Again, the key is imagining that, you know, it's not anybody's job to decide who is a singular person to read, but that it's so much more fun for natives, for Latinx folks who often can be native and or black, right? Um, For white folks, for Asian folks to just be like, I like the description of this book. This sounds fun. And to imagine that that's a better future. For Rocky Mountain Community Radio, I'm Maeve Conran. That story was shared with us via Rocky Mountain Community Radio, a network of public media stations in Colorado, Wyoming, New Mexico, and Utah, including KZMU. The Park City Lift Maintenance Professional Union has formed, and it's the first of its kind in the country. Michelle Dininger with our partners at KPCW reports. The new union will contain both lift mechanics and electricians and will operate under the United Professional Ski Patrols of America, which is an arm of the Communications Workers of America. About 80% of local workers signed a petition last month in support of unionizing. Tuesday morning, every one of the 43 eligible voters cast ballots to weigh in on the move. Voting wrapped up about 11.30 a.m., and after a quick tally, the union was formed by a 35-6 to vote. Officers will be chosen to head the union in the coming days. Union member Liesl Jenkins, who was active in the effort to unionize, said Tuesday that members were celebrating for the moment but would soon get down to the business of contract negotiations. Park City Mountain Vice President and COO Deidre Walsh said in a statement that the outcome was disappointing, but that she appreciated people taking the time to vote and respected their decision. She said, quote, if the results are certified by the National Labor Relations Board, we will comply with all applicable labor and employment laws and bargain in good faith with the representatives selected by our lift maintenance mechanics and electricians. Either way, we're looking forward to a great season. Michelle Dininger, KPCW News. This report is from our partners at KPCW. 
In other union-related news, the effort to unionize Starbucks workers arrived in Boulder, Colorado this month. Azucena Flores has more. Starbucks employees at the Baseline and Broadway location in Boulder are the latest to declare their intent to form a union. The workers petitioned the National Labor Relations Board to hold an election. Accountability with scheduling and wages are one of the things that have been talked about the most. Holden Sheffield is a shift supervisor at the Boulder Baseline store. He says he's optimistic about the success of the unionization vote as support for it is high among the workers of the location. I think that when we signed support cards, uh, it was up close to 80% were willing to sign. A store in Buffalo, New York, became the first Starbucks location to unionize in December of 2021. Sheftel says watching the quick rise of unionization at other locations has been inspiring. As the first store in Boulder to announce our intent to unionize, we hope that we can provide the same inspiration for our local stores that these other stores were for us. If the Baseline Stores employees vote in favor of the union, they will make the location the ninth Colorado Starbucks to unionize. I'm Azucena Flores. This report is from our partners at KGNU. Over 250 Starbucks stores across the country are unionized, including two in Utah in the Wasatch Front. And that's the KZMU News for Thursday, November 24th. Get your community-powered journalism Monday through Friday at noon and 7. You can also find KZMU News anytime online at kzmu.org or wherever you listen to podcasts.